She was a funny woman who could really read. She ate her books for breakfast and her name was Mead. She had a brain just like a sponge. When information went in, it was hard to expunge. She does a podcast now, her skills to reassert. She's the speedy, reedy podcast girl of Instant Expert. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Instant Expert, the podcast where we take any subject known to humanity and focus in on it for a half hour of concentrated goodness. The one thing is that Laura, who is going to be guiding us through whatever the topic is, has only just learned about it. So there may be many inaccuracies and guesses in there. Absolutely. Like, for example, last week, where I said quite emphatically, and after you had trapped me in a corner. Yeah, I, I was a good questioner, a good interviewer. Oh, is the purpose of an interviewer to reveal the points that their interviewee doesn't know about or if you're to Paxman expand the mind of the audience what do you think i don't think there's one answer to that i think you can have different kinds of interviewer and i'm all kinds i flick between the friendly and the investigative adversarial adversarial um anyway so i insisted that bumblebees didn't make honey they do mm-hmm. not as much as honeybees but they do and I said that most bumblebees are solitary and there are some types of bumblebees that do live in colonies quite often underground. So sometimes you keep researching your subjects after you've finished. Yes. There's always more to learn, Loz. If I'm not sure about it, I'll go back and have another look. Fantastic. Well, I've reached out to our wonderful community of listeners to get you a topic for this week. Mm-hmm. Are you excited? Yes. I'm excited. I have a good one, I think. Oh, go on, go on. So, Laura, <laughs> here we go. Here is your topic for this week. Yes. It's a person. Oh. And that person is Richard Feynman. Who? You don't know about Richard Feynman? No. You don't, you don't know anything about him? No. I'm sure you will know a little bit about him. You'll you'll realise who he is. I know a musical actor called Richard Kind who kind of sings a bit like this. It's not him. I will tell you what I know about him. Shall I? No, no. Keep your powder dry. Okay. But in the interests of veracity, I am going to have to ask you for a spelling. Feynman is, I think, spelt F-E-Y-N-M-A-N. Let's see who... Richard Feynman is. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Let's Get Physics Call, the podcast about great people in the field of science. Mm. <laughs> the field of science. The field of science. The scientific field. Now, my love, with this suggestion, which was a suggestion I got from the listening audience, yes. my hope was to take you on a wonderful journey of excitement and magic. But I don't know a huge amount about him, but what I did know about him, I thought sounded very cool. Go on. Did I... Did I manage that? Is he interesting? He is very interesting, yes. Excellent. So I, I succeeded then. Yes. Do you... Um, now, how do we want to feed in what you know already? I only know that he was a physicist. Mm-hmm. 
that he was incredibly eccentric and kind and funny and that he played the bongos. Well, I mean, that's probably about 70% right. Is he? What's what's not right? Not that kind. Oh, no. Oh, that's a pity. But not 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 necessarily evil I just, although he was part of the team that set up the atomic bomb oh right oh well there we go then <laughs> let's uh, let's take a trip down richard Feynman lane well i mean yeah so who who was he so in a nutshell he was a theoretical physicist um specializing in quantum mechanics do you know what quantum mechanics are i do not okay so Quantum mechanics are the properties of nature on an atomic scale and subatomic scale. So quarks. I'm yeah. Just say quarks. Yeah, yeah. That is, <laughs> that's a component of an atom. Excellent. Very good. And in fact, um, later in life, uh, Feynman uh, Feynman had um, something to say about quarks and the different types of quarks. But we'll get to that later. Okay. So. Uh, it's interesting because it measures how objects might have characteristics of both particles and waves, which is called particle wave duality, things like that. So let's get into him because he's very interesting. Um, he was a late developer, you could say. He didn't speak until he was three years old. Right. Um. But when he got a little bit older, he taught his little sister, Joan, astrophysics, even though his mum was like, women can't understand that sort of thing. And it's possible that he may have picked up some of his mum's attitudes towards women in certain ways, although he was always very encouraging of his little sister, Joan, who was about nine years younger than him. Joan Feynman. Joan Feynman, yes. Um, and then he taught himself astrophysics and uh, and sort of various different types of mathematical genius level calculations and things because he was bored at school and um, wanted to learn more very, very quickly. Great. Um, and he also used to say things in really weird ways, like quite direct ways. So instead of, um, for example, when he was studying anatomy... Um, instead of asking for a feline anatomical chart, he would say, do you have a map of the cat? Cool. And when he wrote things down, he would quite often make a lot of spelling and grammar errors and jokes, but he was mathematically brilliant. So when he took an IQ test, for example, I think he got like 120, 125, and his sister got much more than him. Joan Feynman. Yep. So she was always like, oh, I'm the clever one, but he was not the sort of person who would care about that sort of thing. Right. Um, so he was actually rejected from Columbia University, not because his scores and things weren't good enough, but because he was Jewish and they had a quota for Jewish students, oh. which, you know, bearing in mind what was happening at the time in Europe, not so great. Oh, yeah. I guess we don't know when he was born. What, what was his period of activity-ish? So... The first thing he did after graduating with his undergraduate degree from MIT was to go to work on the Manhattan Project. So that puts him in his early 20s 
uh, in around sort of 1935, 36. Uh, so your, your first thing you did wasn't to go to the Wikipedia page and write down when he was born He's, and when he died. Well, I mean... <sighs> It's not that interesting, is it's it? Not it's not the measure of a they're man. Just, they're just dates, aren't they? Yeah, really? they are. You're right. Loz, you were right. They are just dates. Just and, dates. and therefore boring. Um, actually, I was quite interested because I, I couldn't quite believe that the US had quota systems for Jewish students going to university. But they were really, really harsh. And like in Yale and places like that were particularly bad. They would say things like, oh... I only want five Jews, two Irish Catholics, and no blacks. Can you imagine? I, I mean, I mean, I can you imagine can imagine, it. yeah. But it's ugh. it feels weird that that was the twentieth century. Exactly, doesn't it? Uh, so after um, going to MIT, he took a postgraduate exam to go to Princeton, and he got a perfect score on the physics section and an, an outstanding score on the math section, but really, really low again on, on some English. of the written stuff, um, which was, you know, typical of how he went through his whole life. And after uni, as like I said, he went to work on the Manhattan Project, right. where he was working with enriched uranium. And he was very, very into um, the safety protocols for that and designed some of the safety protocols for how to handle enriched uranium, especially when it con has contact with water, which can be, you know, very, very dangerous. Oh, Lars, we've all, we've all had to take some enriched uranium and then put it in water, haven't we? And we know the we problems know. with that. Thanks to Richard Feynman. <laughs> yeah, Richard Feynman really helped with that. But that's not the most interesting thing I think about what he did on the Manhattan Project. The most interesting thing is uh, he used to safe crack his colleagues' desk drawers and lockers because he realised that a lot of the physicists were storing all of their documents in these little wooden lockers using padlocks and then not bothering to change the code on the padlocks. And um, so he used to go and nick documents out of their desk drawers by putting his hand up behind them or just figuring out how to safe crack their padlocks oh, wow. and um yeah so he had a friend whilst he was there called uh, klaus fuchs <laughs> or is it fuchs i don't know um who he didn't give two two fuchs fuchs <sighs> anyway klaus i'm gonna have mate. to put an explicit um sticker on this sticker on this now <laughs> no episode one was explicit oh yeah you effed and jeffed all over the place. Did I? Yes. Oops. Sorry. But episode two was fine. But now I'm not sure because... Oh, man. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd like my little nephew to be listening to this with you. It's just a German name. Fuxing all over the place. Hey, cheeky boy. So at the time, he was, he was secretly married to his childhood sweetheart, a lady called Arlene. And he wasn't supposed to get married to her. Um... But he did. Arlene? Mm-hmm. Come on, Arlene. No. Ar I just never heard the name Arlene before. Yeah, Arlene. I've heard Darlene and Eileen. <laughs> she had... Irene? She had um, tuberculosis. And so she was in a hospital, sort of quarantined in a hospital, a sort of sanatorium. And he used to go and visit her every week using Klaus's car. Now, when Klaus his... who? Klaus Fuchs. Okay. 
<laughs> Naughty. <laughs> <laughs> so when his tampering with all of the lockers and desk drawers was discovered, of course, at that point, the FBI were pretty hot on investigating strange things happening in the scientific community. Mm-hmm. Um, what with the Cold War sort of bubbling under the surface of the hot war. Um, and it turned out that Klaus Fuchs, who had said, oh, well, it might be him, like, oh, that that Richard guy, he's always fiddling around with secret documents. He was actually a spy. What? Fuck me. Exactly. And perhaps he'd even lent Richard his car as to be able to say, oh, well, of course, he keeps going off the base on these secret tours. But no, Richard was actually going to sit with his wife as she died. Holy mackerel. I know, very sad. And after Arlene's death, Richard wrote her a letter, which... Never got to her. Well, actually, that's one of the lines in it that made me feel quite sad for him. It says, please excuse me for not mailing this, but I don't know your new address. (laughs) And that was only opened after he died. So it obviously really, really affected him. Um, He was diagnosed with quite severe depression. Um, which meant that he avoided the draft for later military um, expeditions and um, went back into academia where he uh, put together this thing called a Feynman diagram, which was about electron-positron annihilation, which became very, very popular as a computational tool for doing quantum mechanics. But because he was a bit up himself, possibly, he painted his minivan with pictures of his diagram. Right. And used to drive it around everywhere. What, so that of, everyone knew that it was that his it was invention. Him and he'd done it. Now, at the time when he was working at the university, he didn't like to live a normal life. Um, he was very sexually voracious. He used to stay with married couples and um, fuck, fuck their wives. Oh. <laughs> fuck the wives, which caused a lot of problems. And he would um, employ prostitutes and then he would pretend to be an undergraduate so he could sleep with other undergraduates. He was not a very nice guy in that respect. Yeah, not at all. And he very much liked the sort of the frat house um, style of life and didn't really form any long term relationships at that point. Well, that's very sad for him it is kind of isn't it anyway um after the soviets set off their first atom bomb his girlfriend was like oh if nuclear war breaks out probably one of the best places to be is in uh, south america because you know they're not likely to get as hit as hard as the us and europe and all of that and so he took a sabbatical um and went off to brazil And I think you know what happened there. Was it something to do with the bongos? Yes, it was. So he got really, really into samba music and he learned to play something called the frigidiera, which is basically like a frying pan that you bang. Okay. And also bongos and congo drums. Yeah. And he was good at them? Oh, I think he was quite good. Okay. And he he continued to play bongos and conga throughout his life. Um. And got quite obsessed with practicing them at times. Okay. Um, Then he got married again to his second wife, Mary Louise Bell, which 
ended because of extreme cruelty was what was um, put on the divorce oh, certificate. Gosh. But they had they had a lot of political differences. She was a lot more right wing than him, and at a time when lots of his friends in the scientific community were being investigated for links to Soviet Russia, she basically said, "Oh well, there's no smoke without fire," and that pissed him off a lot. And later on, because he was a genius in um, the field of physics, he was considered for a position on the Presidential Scientific Advisory Committee. And the FBI interviewed various people about him. And it's speculated, although it hasn't been entirely proved, that one of the people that they interviewed was Mary Louise Bell, his ex-wife, who said something along the lines of, he is immensely clever, a genius, but completely ruthless, unhampered by morals, ethics or religion. But she wasn't a fan. No, she wasn't a fan. So, But there's plenty of other stuff that's in his on his docket that suggests mm. she wasn't probably she wasn't that far off the mark oh well, there we go i mean he was very interesting he had an interesting approach to psychology as well he used to take pot and ketamine in a flotation tank um as part of various psychological experiments but he gave up drinking as soon as he realized that he might be forming addiction to it because he didn't want to damage his brain he was like this is a good one so, I mean, I'm the possessor of a good brain and I shouldn't be trashing it up with all sorts of chemicals. Yeah, yeah, that's how he was. Um, and then after this slightly going off the rail, rails period, he met uh, a Yorkshire woman who was quite sexually liberated and invited her to live with him as a live-in maid. Right for which he said he would pay her a lower salary than she was currently on. But uh, anyway. Um, Did she go? What was her name? Yeah, she 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 went. I forgot what her name was, though. Ah, but yes. she was one to Chris. Oh, well done, darling. But she was very no-nonsense. As and, Yorkshire women often are. And she was like, I, I won't date you. I've already got two boyfriends. And Because um, she was sexually liberated. Yes. Yes. But he was quite insistent and they married after about a year and went on to have two children. And I think they stayed together pretty much from there on. So let's go on to some of the things that he did that I think are quite interesting. You might have heard of him um, as being part of the Rogers Commission. Do you know what the Rogers Commission was? I do not. It was um, a part of the investigative team for the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Um, which occurred because the O-rings that were used to seal some of the fuel tanks had frozen in very, very cold weather and were not all that good to begin with. And so on after just after takeoff, um, the some of the fuel tanks exploded. Uh, although it didn't actually explode the cabin where the various um, astronauts were, um, they possibly died when they hit the ocean at like 220 miles per hour. What's an O-ring? Uh, it's a seal. It's like a seal that goes. It stops gases and air mixing and stops things from catching fire that shouldn't be catching fire at that point. So it's literally a ring. But the thing about the name O-ring is that all rings look like O's. Yes, yeah, true. So that's a weird name for them. So anyhow, um, he was part of the team that investigated that. And one thing that he said that was quite interesting, um, the 
managers uh, at the NASA facility had estimated that the risk was much, 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 much lower than the engineers had done because they wanted the launch to proceed because it was going to be televised. In fact, it, it, like 17% of the US population saw the launch happen live and saw the disaster happen live because there was a teacher on board who was going to be teaching children about things. And he said... When was this? The, the Challenger disaster. I remember this. Was this in the 80s? Um, I think it's late 70s. Oh, okay, then I don't remember it. I must remember another one. Oh, there's... And I remember the, a school teacher, uh, someone, an astronaut who was a school teacher dying. Yeah, that would have been this, yeah. I mean, it could have been in a documentary that was being re-shown in the 80s. Mm. I need to go back and look up the date. Anyway, he, he said the quote, For a successful technology, reality must take precedence over public relations, for nature cannot be fooled. Which, wise words, I think. You yes. Know, because, frankly... A lot of the stuff that's happening now, you, you can't PR nature, stuff going to happen. That's right. And he was also very, very into um, nanotechnology. He published a book called There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom, which was about how you could directly manipulate individual atoms via nanoscale machines to do chemical synthesis via mechanical manipulation. So tiny little robots moving around Absolutely. things at an atomic level. Yes. He um, published an essay called Swallowing the Doctor, which was about how you could possibly swallow a tiny little surgical robot. Um, and you and I recently played a game which was called A Fisherman's Tale. Yes. Which is a VR game where you have... You are a Simultaneous. tiny little puppet, yes. Yeah. And there's a bigger version of you and a smaller version of you. And you sort of... And bigger. there's lots of bigger versions and lots of smaller versions and they all interact and do the same thing at the same time. It's a very interesting puzzle game. Exactly. So that's kind of what he envisaged for how to create these nanomachines, that you would have something that was a tiny, tiny scale replica of yourself uh, of your of your tools which would in turn create a tiny scale replica of those tools and down and down and down onto that nanotechnology level so he demonstrated it by using the example of something called a pantograph which was used originally in drawing by the greeks and it's a, it's a tool that uses um levers and things to scale up or scale down or identically replicate drawings movements, those sorts of things. So um, he set two challenges to people to see if they could come up with stuff that would show how nanotechnology might happen. So one of them was a tiny, tiny engine. And the other one was um, how to make text 25,000 times smaller than it currently is. And uh, both of those challenges have been completed now. And both of the winners won a whole thousand dollars that he had left for them. Um, what, this was recently? No, no. One of the tiny little motor had already been built bef as he put his hypothesis together by somebody using conventional tools, mm -hmm. just working like on a really, really small scale. Um, and somebody else managed to put the tail of two cities on a pinhead. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... In 1965, he was part of a team that shared the Nobel Prize for Physics on quantum electrodynamics. And he was also one of the first scientists to conceive of quantum computers. It's something that you know a little bit about, isn't it? Quantum, 
quantum computing? I think it's got something to do with quantum computers aren't just binary. They're not just on or off. They can be in a quantum state whereby they're both or neither or... I mean, I obviously don't know at all, but I know it is something around... Effectively, a classical computer or a standard normal computer can do everything that a quantum computer can do and vice versa. But in an ideal situation or in in a theoretical situation, a quantum computer can work up to three million times faster. That is quite fast. It is a lot faster. We should definitely do that <laughs> at some point. I think IBM are working on a lot of the most advanced forms of uh, quantum computers. and um, I mean, that would be quite a jump. And when that happens, it'll be really interesting because computers will be able to then design the next computer and we'll what we'll see, I guess, at that point is we'll jump light years fu- uh, into the future of what computers can do. Mm. I think there is is probably a name for it. When, but when we get to a point where computers can design the next ones, then we'll see these sort of huge leaps forwards. Yeah. What is that name? It's well, worrying anyway. What? No, well, I mean, it's, I suppose, yes, it's a little bit worrying, but it's also very exciting. Anyway. Do you remember our first podcast on the Dunning-Kruger effect? I do. It was only two weeks ago. He gave a, a commencement address for a university on something called cargo cult science, which is like a, a pseudoscience, where he said, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Yeah. And he basically said, you know, science is all about admitting that you're wrong, admitting that you've made mistakes and being honest about it. For that bit of self-awareness, it's also possible to look at the man and the science as one thing. And he was quite misogynistic in a lot of the things he did. His book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, which he published, was basically partly about his attempt to be a pickup artist. And he calls women bitches a lot and says that somebody was worse than a whore because he bought her a sandwich and then she wouldn't have sex with him. So... You know, not a great guy, not not a great guy, but a guy full of contradictions because he did go ahead and say, well, women do suffer more prejudice and discrimination in the field of physics. And when one of his um, colleagues at Caltech brought a suit against the university in 1977, she was one of the first female professors of physics employed by the university, but they didn't accept her for tenure and Uh, they didn't pay her equally to the men he supported her through that suit and spoke out and on gave evidence on her behalf so it's clear that he was quite a troubled man and he had a lot of psychological things going on but um he was also a very very interesting man some of those quirks of genius manifested themselves in ways that we might just think oh he's a bit of a dick like when he went out to eat with his colleagues and left a tip for the waitress underneath a full glass of water, like an inverted glass of water, Mm. because he wanted to show them how he could do that without spilling water everywhere, but it just meant that for the waitress, (laughs) her tip was underneath a massive glass of water. So what would you say his legacy is, if any, to the modern world? I mean, I imagine that his his studies in quantum mechanics, his studies in quantum computers and nanotechnology, a lot of scientists were very, very inspired by his work in those areas. And those sorts of things, those advances are going to become an increasing part of our world as we go on. 
And he's often in the list of top 10 physicists of all time. But those top those BuzzFeed lists, oh, they're so readable. Everyone's always <laughs> reading about top 10 physicists, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, I know. I just, every now and again, I'd like to just check in case it's changed at all. But, you know, I, I feel like it's it's interesting to read about a scientist with a bit more personality. And most scientists that become famous usually have everybody's got some kind of demons that they fight einstein was very xenophobic and racist stephen hawking did not treat his first wife very well everybody's got these hidden skeletons in their closet and i think with feynman's personality they're just a little bit closer to the surface i suppose I mean, even his final words were quite funny. He said, I'd hate to die twice. It's so boring. And then he died. Then he died. Wow. So, you know, it's it's cool that we have these great minds, but they are just human. And I'm sure that he would probably appreciate that as much as we do. Well, Laura, thank you very much. That is... um... It's been very interesting. I am sad that he is not quite the great man I thought he was. I mean, in some ways he was, and in other ways, definitely not a role model. Just goes to prove I should read up more on people or get you to and tell me about them. No, no, I mean, oh gosh. I feel like that that whole the, the whole concept of the great man is one that needs to be challenged anyway. Why I meant don't we a just great human being. No, I, w- I meant a great human. I was just talking mm. about him because he was a man, mm. a great man. Yeah. But say if Neil Gaiman was suddenly revealed to, I don't know, do something horrible. Well, I have had this because Joss Whedon yeah. turns out to be incredibly abusive and nasty to his wife. And his work is very empowering of women sometimes. Mm. And it's very sad mm. to find that he is not he doesn't live those values in real life. Does that make Buffy any less enjoyable? It it doesn't on the surface, it's still the same work, mm. but I feel differently about it now. It's true. It's true. It's like watching a fantastic film that you remember from when you were younger and then realizing that it fails the Bechdel test and then suddenly it's just like, oh, would have been easier would have been quite easy to add in another woman and he didn't even make the princess bride he made the atom bomb so it's not (laughs) even as if i'm a huge fan of his work yeah (laughs) i know ah well i think we're going to get some of these we're going to find some uh what would we call them people with feet of clay and we're going to find others that we thought were a bit rubbish that turn out to be pretty incredible. I will say that this was the first one where I got so interested in something that they'd done that I forgot to write anything down for the first 20 minutes of my research just because I was just reading. And it's definitely one of those people who I'm going to go and read up some more on. So I should ask my standard question, which is, is there anything that you had to make up or... uh, you panicked about just so because you know we don't want to spread fake news Mm. Um, i can't think of anything that i wholesale made up okay 
I mean, I'm not so hot on dates and things. Sure, but, um, but you didn't pretend quotes, to be. <laughs> none of the examples, yeah. <laughs> but you're I, happy with that as, a, as yeah. an overview of his life? I think so, yes. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, we've come to the end of another podcast. Who, who knows where we'll be next week? Probably still in our living room. I mean, in the theatre of the mind. Oh, yes. Mm. Mm. Which halls shall we travel together? Well, find out next week, listeners. See you then. Bye. Bye. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at ixpodcast at hotmail.com or on Twitter or Instagram at ixpodcast.